Today we begin a new sermon series entitled First and Ten, a study of the Ten Commandments. For many people, the Ten Commandments serve as the bedrock upon which the American civil law is built. For other individuals, the Ten Commandments are nothing more than an antiquated list of do's and don'ts that really have no relevance to everyday life. Back in the 1950s, there were several granite monuments that were constructed, sprinkled along the landscape of our land in various courthouses and government property that portrayed the Ten Commandments. Over the last 20 years or so, most of those monuments have come down one by one. I contend this morning that uh, the Ten Commandments were perhaps the first victims of cancel culture. We may agree that it's a sad state of affairs when the Ten Commandments can no longer be publicly displayed. But I want to make the argument this morning that long before they came down in public, they came down in private. And the reason, I think, that they were permitted to come down in public is because too many of God's people had taken down the Ten Commandments in the private recesses of their heart. I have no research for this. It's just a holy hunch. But I've got a sneaking suspicion that there are few Christians who could recite for us the Ten Commandments, and fewer still who actually live by them. So on this day, we begin a new study. We go back to Mount Sinai. I think it's important from time to time for Christians to return to Mount Sinai, to that place where God descended in the dense, dark cloud of smoke, And he came down and dwelt with his people and inscribed on two tablets of stone with his very finger, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. So over the next ten weeks or so, we're going to find ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it this morning. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read verses 1, 2, and 3 in your hearing. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand and reverence the public reading of God's holy word this morning. I want to preach a sermon that's entitled, First Things First, Exodus chapter 20. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the very word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you and I return to Mount Sinai, I think there are at least three things that happen. First, we are reminded of his identity. In verse 1 of our passage, it simply begins by telling us that God spoke all these words. The author of this text, Moses himself, wants us to remember and realize that this is not a list made by Moses. This is not Moses' top ten list. This is a list that belongs to God and God alone. It is God who spoke the Decalogue. It is God who spoke these ten commandments. When you hear that phrase, God spoke, your mind immediately rushes and races back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And if I were to ask you, how did God create the heavens and the earth? You would have to reply, God spoke. There was nothing 
and God spoke and there became something. That God said, let there be light, and light came running at 186,000 miles per second. That all God had to do was merely speak something, and it came to be. God spoke. This list that we're going to examine over the next 10 weeks, it does not originate with Moses. It does not originate with any other human. This is a list that's handed down by God and God alone, for God spoke. In verse 2, He simply identifies himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God. Now when you hear that phrase, I am, your mind goes back just a few chapters earlier to Exodus chapter 3. It's there where God spoke to Moses through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. Now Moses was minding his own business. He was on the backside of Mount Horeb. He was watching the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Moses was about 80 years young in this moment. For 40 years he had been shepherding those sheep. He was a seasoned shepherd. So because of that, it wasn't uncommon for him to see a brush fire from instant combustion from the arid heat of the Palestinian sun. Normally what would happen is that a shrub or a bush would set ablaze just for a few seconds and then it would die out when the shrub was consumed. What made this so interesting was that on this day in this site for this shrub it was on fire but not being consumed. In fact Moses says I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. What made it so strange was not that the bush was on fire. What made it strange is that the fire kept blazing and the shrub never burned out. He walked over. God saw that he got the attention of Moses. And so he called him by name, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. And at that moment, Moses thought to himself, this ain't no ordinary day. This is extraordinary. God Almighty is speaking to me through this bush. And through that bush that was on fire but not being consumed, the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I am concerned about them. And I want to go and liberate them from their Egyptian captivity. Moses must have thought, that's a great idea. I'm glad you're finally paying attention. But God, who are you going to get to go down and liberate your children? It's at that moment that the Lord said to Moses, I want you to go. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Moses did what we would do. Who, me? You want me to go down and stand in front of the most powerful man in all the world, Pharaoh himself, and declare, God says, let my people go? He began to backpedal. He began to uh, look back just a little bit and think to himself, now, wait a minute, i got to come up with a few excuses because I am not fit for this task. The first excuse he offered was, what is your name? Let's say that I agree to this mission impossible. Let's say that I agree to this task and I actually go down and they ask me the question, what is the name of the God that sent you to us? After all, the Egyptians, they worship numerous gods. So if they were curious and if they wondered, what is the name of the God that sent you to us with that audacious request to let God's people go? What name am I supposed to give them? It's there in Exodus 3. Where the Lord says, you tell them, I am sent me to you. I am. I am the God who's in a class all by himself. I am a God who has no rivals. I am 
the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I'm not a God who is evolving. I'm not a God who is growing and developing. I am. I, I, I am in perpetual state of isness. I'm in perpetual state of presence. I am in the past. I am in this moment. I am in the future. I'm in a class all by myself. In fact, that phrase, I am, was never spoken by any rabbi, any religious leader, any Jewish man, woman, boy, or girl. It was a word that was always muted. It was a word that was always passed over. No one would dare speak the name of God until you get to Jesus. And Jesus routinely employed that term, I am, to describe himself. In John's gospel, he gives seven messianic metaphors where he uses the language of God. When Jesus says, I am, and he's picking it right out of Exodus chapter 3, he could have structured his sentence in another way, and he could have said the phrase, I am, with other words, but he used the very name of God on seven occasions, that number of completion. In John's gospel, Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I'm the way, truth, and the life. I am the vine. On seven occasions, he declares his identity, that he is God. Not another God, a lesser God, or merely like God, or a creation of God. He is God all by himself. And Jesus declares the word that's reserved for God and God alone, I am. In our passage, it says, I am the Lord. Probably in your translation, the word Lord is written in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That communicates to you in English that in Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. It's the one true God of the universe. It's the sole savior of mankind. It's the only God of all creation. I am the Lord. Now, God does something remarkable in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He hitches his identity with his activity. Because who he is determines what he does. And what he does helps to describe who he is. Did you see what he said? Look with me again in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Lord says, let me frame all of these 10 commandments under the reality that I am the God who liberates. I am the God who sets you free. I have set you free. Now I'm gonna give you these 10 regulations, these 10 words, these 10 stipulations. I'm gonna give you these 10 commandments. And by those 10 commandments, you will live in that freedom. I have set you free. He hitches together his identity and his activity. And his actions are not random, but they're redemptive. His actions are not sporadic, but they are salvific. And this is how God has always operated. He has always operated in a redemptive way in the lives of his people. He's always acted in a salvific way in the lives of his people. Everything he tells us to do is framed in the construct that he is the liberator. Before he ever gives a command, he gives us our conviction that ours is the God who liberates I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. And Egypt always for the child of God symbolizes that place of captivity, the land of slavery. 
Now, there have been some people who examine the Ten Commandments, and a quick observation reveals at least one thing, that seven out of ten of the Ten Commandments start with, you shall not. Kind of has a negative tone to it, doesn't it? You shall not. Nobody likes to be told what they're not supposed to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do or what not to do, and that's nothing new. Even the people in the days of Moses didn't like it either. But friend, don't ever forget that the reason God tells you what not to do is because he is the Lord your God. Let me put it this way. If you know I am the Lord your God, you can handle you shall not. You'll listen to the you shall not if you know who's speaking it. You shall not is spoken by the one who says I am the Lord your God. I am the one who created all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. I am the Lord. And because I am the Lord, I can tell you what you shall do and what you shall not do. And if you know I am the Lord, you can handle his you shall nots. I contend that the only people who cannot handle the you shall not statements of the Ten Commandments, they don't know I am the Lord your God. If you know God for who he is, you will accept what he says. I am the Lord, therefore you shall not. I can handle the you shall nots so long as I know I am the Lord your God. If I know him, I know his identity. And by knowing his identity, I understand something about his activity. When you and I go back to Mount Sinai, it's important because we remember his identity. He is the law-giving liberator. There are some people, even in the church, who resist the Ten Commandments. They resist the Ten Commandments based on this. People will say, I am no longer bound under the covenant of law. I am bound under the covenant of grace. So I don't have to necessarily obey those Ten Commandments. All I've got to do is be a recipient of God's amazing grace. I am not bound by the first mediator, Moses. I am bound by the second ultimate mediator, Jesus himself. I am not part of the covenant of law. I am part of the covenant of grace. And I understand the argument but I would insert this rebuttal. In the Bible, there is no such thing as lawless grace and there's no such thing as graceless law. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The God of the Old Testament, I'm told by some, is a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament, I'm told by some, is a God of grace. But I think that's a bunch of trash and garbage. Because God is the same Old Testament and New Testament. Because there's no such thing as lawless grace and there's no such thing as graceless law. If you listen to some brethren closely, it would appear that what they are arguing is that I would rather be a recipient of grace because it's easier to follow Jesus than it is to follow the law. And I want to contend this morning that it's actually harder to follow Jesus than to follow the law. Because Jesus had a knack of internalizing that which was external. He had a habit 
of raising the bar of commitment, nevering, never lowering the bar of commitment. I'll give you two examples based out of the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, you shall not even get angry at your brother. Now, friends, I can show you a lot of people who have been obedient to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I mean, I'm looking at a lot of people, and probably the vast majority, if not all of you, have been obedient to that sixth commandment. It's not that you don't want to kill somebody sometimes, but you actually have not killed somebody anytime. Most of you, if not all of you, you've never killed anybody. And chances are, you're probably going to live the rest of your life never killing anybody. The odds are in your favor that you won't kill somebody. Oh, but I'm hard-pressed to find anybody, even the people staring at me this morning, who've never broken the sixth commandment according to Jesus, never getting angry with someone. We get angry with somebody for anything. We drive down the road and we get angry. Somebody cuts us off, we get angry. Uh, Somebody takes that last item on the shelf, we get angry. I mean, somebody does something against us, we get angry. Somebody says something against us, we get angry. Somebody does something harmful, we get angry. We get angry about anything. We get angry if our team does badly or poorly. I mean, we can get angry at the referees. We can get angry at the coaches. We can get angry at anybody. We can get angry. I don't know anybody who's obedient to the sixth command according to Jesus. I'll give you another example. The seventh commandment in Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yet I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Once again, I can show you a lot of people who have been obedient to the seventh commandment of you shall not commit adultery. Most people are not cheaters according to the seventh commandment. Most people don't cheat on their spouse. Most people in the church don't cheat on their spouse. Oh, but I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who's not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment according to Jesus. I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who's never lusted after someone. You see, Jesus doesn't lower the bar of commitment he raises the bar of commitment jesus takes what is external and makes it internal so so jesus is the giver of the covenant of grace but that doesn't mean that he abolishes the covenant of law in fact jesus said i have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in every way. When you and I come to Mount Sinai, we remember his identity. And who is this God of Exodus chapter 20? He is the law-giving liberator. Everything he tells us to do is framed in the construct that he has set us free. Secondly, when you and I go to Mount Sinai, we remember his requirements. Most of us would contend that the gospel is a call for us to love. We would quote Jesus. Jesus said, when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Christians tell me today, see, Jesus only wants us to love. That's it. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to remember. In fact, he went on to say, all of the Old Testament law and prophets hang and swivel on these two commands. Love God with everything inside of you and love your neighbor as yourself. So all we've got to focus on is just love. Let's just love everybody. Love God, love other people. And I understand that. But I ask you, practically speaking, how do you love God? Someone in the crowd may respond in this way. Well, the way I love God is by putting him first in my life. Not worshiping anything he has created. Not misusing his name in an inappropriate way. And always crafting in my weekly schedule a significant time to worship him. Do you know what you just said? You just gave me the first four commandments. How do you love God? You love God by the first four commandments. If I were to ask you, how do you love your neighbor? Practically speaking, how do you love your neighbor? Somebody in the crowd would say, well, for starters, I guess I shouldn't kill him. And then, I probably shouldn't sleep with his spouse. I probably shouldn't steal his stuff. I probably shouldn't lie to him or about him. I probably shouldn't want his stuff more than I want my stuff. Do you know what you just gave me? You just gave me the second half of the Ten Commandments, the, the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because what Jesus is doing when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he is just giving you the cliff note version of the Ten Commandments. He's just giving you the abbreviated version of the Decalogue. That if you're going to love God, do the first four, five things. If you're going to love neighbor, do the last five or six things. And that will be practical ways that you love God and that you love others. See, Jesus does not diminish the role of the Ten Commandments in your life. He seems to intensify the role of the Ten Commandments in your life. So this morning, I want us to begin with the first one. And the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It would seem to me that God is setting the table saying, let's deal with first things first. If you don't get this one, it really doesn't matter what the other nine say. If you don't get this one, this is the most important. In fact, the other nine flow out of the reality of the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. That word before should better be translated besides. You shall have no other gods besides me. It's not that God is saying, I want to be first in a laundry list of deities in your life, as if there are some acceptable gods and goddesses that can be on your list after number one. No, it's not that he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me, as if you can have some after me. No, he's saying, you shall have no other gods besides me. I'm in a class all by myself, God says. God says, I'm, I'm on par with no one. I'm on the same list of no one. I am there all by myself. I am God and God alone. I am demanding exclusivity with you. 
What does God require of you? Total allegiance. It's not enough to give him second place. Not enough to give him what's left over. He demands and deserves total allegiance. You shall have no other gods besides me. The only place that's the rightful place for Jesus is first place in your life. The only place that's the rightful place for Jesus is first place in your life. He demands exclusivity. Now, why does he make such a claim? It's a hefty claim. I mean, he's telling you that, that he wants to be exclusive with you. He's demanding this. And why would he declare it? Because he deserves it. He's the only one that can make such a claim. There's no other deity. There's no other so-called god or goddess that can make such a claim that they are above all else. Only God, Yahweh, I am, can make such a claim. He is saying to his people, um, I have exclusive rights over you. Some of you probably recall that before I was a senior pastor, I was a student pastor. That was several years ago. Um, but some things in student ministry don't change regardless of the time frame. For example, uh, it was always obvious to me uh, when young love began to flourish in the student ministry. You saw the guy and you saw the girl and you saw them looking at each other. You saw them hanging out with each other. You saw how they gravitated towards each other after the worship service was over. I mean, it was obvious. It was evident. And I remember I would go up to that boy, that girl, that teenage young man, teenage young girl. And I would say, um, so y'all are dating? No. Uh-uh. Oh, you're not? No, no. We're just talking. Oh, okay. So you're not dating? No, 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 no. We're not dating. We're talking. Okay. Now keep in mind, this is, you know, several years ago. So after I saw the progression of the romance, it was a couple of weeks later. Now I'd go up to them and I'd say, so you're, you're dating now. Uh-uh. No. No, we're seeing each other. Oh. Okay. And, and that's different than talking? Well, of course it's different than talking. What are you, an idiot? Yes, apparently I am. So there's talking, and, and now, now you're, you're seeing each other. Yes. Okay, that's great. A few weeks later, the romance is still there. It's still obvious. Seems as if they're getting more serious. So I go up to them. Okay, now you're dating, right? We're exclusive. What does that mean? You're exclusive. Usually it was the guy that would speak up. That means I ain't looking at nobody else. We're exclusive. You know what God is telling his people in Exodus chapter 20? He's saying when it comes to me and you and you and me, the Lord says, I don't want us just to be talking. I don't want us just to be seeing each other. I want us to be exclusive. God, what do you mean by that? I mean, I don't want you looking at nobody else. We are exclusive, God says. 
How can God make that claim? Because he is your liberator. He has set you free. And if he has set you free, then he can tell you what you ought to do and ought not to do. Remember, he is the law-giving liberator, and his requirements of you is total allegiance. In other words, God is saying, let's be exclusive. I don't want you looking at anybody else. I don't want you to give your affection to anybody else. I don't want you to give your attention to anybody else. We are exclusive. So if I were to ask you this morning, are you and God exclusive? Most of you would answer, yes. Of course we're exclusive. I'm in church in the middle of a pandemic for crying out loud. I mean, don't you know that I'm exclusive with God? I'm here, aren't I? I'm tuned in, haven't I? I mean, I got to get some credit some way, somehow. Of course we're exclusive. I'm in church. I'm tuned into church. Of course we're exclusive. Oh, but friends, let me ask you a few diagnostic questions that have always been helpful to me, and I pray that they're helpful to you. Because if I answer these questions objectively and honestly, it will accurately reveal the exclusivity of my life towards God. The questions are threefold. Number one, who do you think about the most? Second, who do you make it your aim to please? And third, who do you rearrange your schedule for? You answer those three questions, it will reveal who's exclusive in your life. Who do you think about the most? Now be honest about it. You say, the answer is Jesus. I know the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the right answer, but is he the accurate answer? Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Well, the answer is supposed to be Jesus. I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but is that the accurate answer in your life? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that the answer is Jesus. Of course the answer is Jesus. But is that the accurate answer in your life? I don't want to get too much into the second commandment because that's next week. But I'll suffice it to say this, that we are idol makers. And sometimes good things become God things. Just answer the questions honestly. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? And sometimes the answer to one, two, or all three of those questions is me. I think about me the most. I make it my aim to please me. I rearrange my schedule for me because I do whatever I want to do. Maybe the answer is you. Maybe the answer is your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Perhaps it's your grandchildren. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your savings. Maybe it's your recreation. Maybe it's your pleasure. But what or who do you think about the most? What or who do you make it your aim to please? And what or who do you rearrange your schedule for? And that reveals exclusivity. I told you before, but several years ago, I was in Boston, Massachusetts. I was speaking at a sports camp. Sports camp for underprivileged uh, student athletes. Most of those student athletes are somewhere between the ages of 12 and 18. For some of those that are 17, 18 years old, I mean, they have hopes and dreams of playing Division I football. I remember I was there, I gave a, a talk about the exclusivity of Christ in your life, that the only place is first place in your life. 
And after it was over, two rather large 18-year-old young men came at me. It was obvious they were football players, obvious that they had to be either offensive line or defensive line. No doubt about it. The first one spoke up and he said, uh, he said, hey, preacher, you know when you were talking and I had to think about, you know, who do I think about the most? Who do I make my aim to please? Who do I rearrange my schedule for? Who's in first place of my life? Who's exclusive in my life? I got to be honest with you. I was thinking of coach because I do whatever my coach tells me to do. I mean, I want to play Division I football. So if my coach tells me, get here early, I get here early. If he tells me to stay late, I stay late. If he tells me to do extra drills, I do extra drills. If he tells me to stay longer in the weight room, I stay longer in the weight room. Not only do I want to play on Friday night, but I have dreams of playing on Saturday. So I, I, want, to, I want to play. My only way out of the life I have is through a Division I scholarship. I know this. And so I, I do whatever my coach tells me to do. And he said, tonight I realize I've put my coach in place of Christ over my life. The other young man spoke up and he said, man, I understand what you're saying about coach being in the you know, first chair of exclusivity. But he said, preacher, I got to tell you, um, when you're talking, I'm thinking about mama because I do whatever mama tells me to do. I mean, I, I rearranged my schedule for mama. I mean, I'm making my aim to, to please mama. And, and according to what you said, I got to go home and kick mama to the curb. And I said, well, you got that from what I said? Look, don't go home and kick mama to the curb. That is not what I said. But your insight is astounding. Because what you're acknowledging is that you've placed the exclusive spot of your life to a very good person, your mom. But even the best people on planet Earth can't fit in the exclusive God-shaped spot of your life. It is crafted and created so that Christ may dwell there in Christ alone. When you and I come to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God is demanding exclusive rights over your life. That you and God have to be exclusive. When you and I come to Mount Sinai, what does he require of us? He requires total allegiance. Anything less than that is unacceptable in the sight of God. It's good for us to go back to Mount Sinai. Not only do we see and remember his identity, he is the law-giving liberator. Not only do we remember his requirements, for he requires of us total allegiance. But third and finally, when we return to Mount Sinai, we remember his GPS. What do I mean by GPS? God's plan of salvation. It's revealed right there in Mount Sinai. Did you hear what God said? In verse 2, he said... Uh, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When you and I come to Mount Sinai, it propels us to another mountain. Because God does some great work on top of mountains. So when we come to Mount Sinai, we see God's plan of salvation. For 
in the distance, we see the shadow of a larger mountain. It is Mount Calvary. And it is there where God liberates us, not from the land of slavery, but from the life of slavery. It is true that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the greatest act of deliverance is by God redeeming his children from Egyptian captivity. But the greatest act of God's deliverance, bar none, in the rest of the Bible and all of human history is when Jesus descended, came to earth, went up Calvary's hill, and he died in your stead so that he could give you forgiveness of sin and liberate you from the life of slavery to sin with the devil being the taskmaster. So when you and I come to Mount Sinai, we are propelled to Mount Calvary. It was John Calvin who said, when I see the Ten Commandments, I do not see them as a ladder upon which I've got to climb the rungs to get to God. No, I see them as a mirror, for it reveals my sinfulness. Friend, do not treat the Ten Commandments as a ladder, trying to make your way up to God. Because each step, each rung will collapse under the weight of your humanity. I'll go ahead and give you a heads up. We are going to fail at all ten of these commandments. Because the commandments are not given to us as a ladder, but rather as a mirror so that we are propelled to Mount Calvary. For on Mount Sinai, God came down. At Mount Calvary, God was crucified. On Mount Sinai, the word was written. On Mount Calvary, the word was executed, crucified. On Mount Sinai, love is declared. On Mount Calvary, love is demonstrated. On Mount Sinai, guilt is felt. On Mount Calvary, guilt is forgiven. On Mount Sinai, the Savior is needed. On Mount Calvary, the Savior is supplied. On Mount Sinai, questions are asked. On Mount Calvary, answers are given. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no, nothing but the blood of Jesus. When you and I come to Mount Sinai, we remember his GPS. God's plan of salvation is substitutionary atonement because when we come to Mount Sinai, we're propelled to Mount Calvary because of Mount Calvary, Jesus paid it all. And all to him, I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So you and I come to Mount Sinai, and we see in the distance Mount Calvary. That's where Christ came. That's where he was crucified for me. That's where he died for you. That's where his cold, dead body was taken off the cross and placed to a borrowed tomb. And that's where Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for God's plan of salvation. I think it's good, time to time, to go back to Mount Sinai. When we go there, we are reminded of his identity. He is the Lord, our God. He is the law-giving liberator. When we go to Mount Sinai, we, we remember his requirements. He demands exclusive, total allegiance. Nothing else will do. When we go to Mount Sinai, we, we catch a glimpse of another mountain. For at Mount Calvary, that's where God's plan of salvation was executed, 
to perfection. This morning I wonder, is there somebody here who has never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord? Is there somebody here who never acknowledged that they're sinful before God, never acknowledged that that God has made the way for your sins to be forgiven forever and freely? And you're here today and you just simply need to confess to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God's son who died on the cross for you and was raised on the third day and declare your allegiance to him. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, not only am I calling you to do it privately, I'm calling you to do it publicly. I'm gonna pray. Brett and the team are gonna sing. And while they sing, after I pray, I want you to come forward, take one of the pastors by the hand and say, hey, I need to be forgiven of my sins. If I'm speaking to the redeemed and you're a part of the faith family, can I ask you this morning, um, are you exclusive with God? Does he have exclusive rights over your life? Or as you answer those questions, was there something else that was taking the seat of the Savior in your mind? Maybe you just need to come and kneel here at the altar and confess your sin, repent and pray. I'm gonna pray. Brett and the team are gonna come and sing. While they're singing, I want you to come, kneel and pray. Maybe you're praying for yourself. Maybe you're praying for somebody else. Maybe you're here and you need to join this church. This is where God wants to plant you. Do it in this moment of invitation. Maybe God is calling some of you to be a pastor, a preacher, Maybe he's calling you to be a missionary. Maybe God is calling you to do something for him. Let that be made known today. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And while we sing, you respond in obedience to your great God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. We pray that you will move. We pray that we will respond in obedience. We pray that you will seek and save that which is lost, that you will prompt us to repent of sin, to be planted here in your church. Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, let us do it right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.